In November of 1924, in Los Angeles, California, a woman died of what was thought to be pneumonia. 32 people had had contact with her. And within four days before the disease could be correctly diagnosed and contained, 26 of them had died. And they died suddenly, violently, and horribly. The disease was finally found to be pneumonic plague. And its death incidence is practically what... Why don't you say he was? Welcome to Now Playing's review of Panic in the Streets. Well, it's possible that dead man may have had some communicable disease. Part of the Now Playing Viral Outbreak movie review series. Another contagion case, huh? Hosted by Jacob. If you didn't bring him in or have any contact with him, then you've got nothing to worry about. Stuart. You leave him alone, Fitch. Maybe he's got a touch of swamp fever or something. And Arnie. I want everything that's touched him burned or sterilized, you understand? This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Don't talk like that, Fitch. Listener discretion is advised. Nevertheless, here we go. Today, we're discussing Panic in the Streets, starring Richard Widmark, Paul Douglas, Barbara Belgettis, Jack Palance, Zero Mustel, directed by Elia Kazan. This is the now-playing co-host who's fond of shish kebab, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the co-host who likes high foreheads, Jacob. Well, we hope everybody at home is healthy and safe and likely quarantined, no matter where you're listening to us from in the world. Yeah, at the moment of recording, we are all separated apart. Watching the news is one of the first shows that we've taped since this pandemic has hit America. We're hearing reports that tonight there are over 60,000 cases in America by the time this airs. Who knows? But we are thinking about this pandemic and checking in with you. You guys told us you were interested in watching movies about viruses. I don't know about that, you know? (laughs) Like, I can understand why some people might be like, I want to turn that off. I don't want to think about that. It's scary to contemplate when you turn on the news these days. Yeah, but people are, I think, indulging in it in some ways as entertainment, As of this recording, Contagion is the number four movie on iTunes, and it has been for weeks. And Outbreak is in, like, the top 25. And, let's face it, we had to kind of fill out our schedule. The New Mutants is, I mean, that got punted for the sixth time or something. But James Bond got moved, Black Widow, the new Saw film, Fast and Furious 9, and just a couple days ago when we're recording this, Wonder Woman 84. Half of our schedule for the spring has no release date anymore. Yeah, I thought May was going to be a super busy month for us in July and lots of new releases, and now we don't know. Yes. And we didn't really necessarily know how to approach virus movies either. There are a lot of them, and we've covered some of them. And you can go find those in the archives. 28 Days Later and I Am Legend, all The Stand. I did a list. I wanted to see how many we've really done if people wanted to do a full now playing virus retrospective. There's the I Am Legend trilogy, starting with The Last Man on Earth in 1964. Yeah. Then Omega Man in 71. There's The Stand from 94, 12 Monkeys, that counts, right? 1995. Definitely. 28 Days Later, 2002. Resident Evil, also 2002. Yeah, you got 28 Weeks Later as well. Yep, yep. Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and then it's two sequels, but Rise came out in 2011. 
dare I add it, in the name of the king two, two worlds? It might make you sick watching it. <laughs> it. There was someone plotting to release a virus, yes. And they did. That's the thing. It's not if they were plotting to. They released it in the kingdom of Ebb. World War Z and Day of the Dead Bloodline. <laughs> yeah, I think what's different here, and because we do want to be sensitive, we're not doing the sensational zombie outbreak type films. I mean, we talked about all kind of viral outbreaks, and we really wanted something that, that would speak to what's going on right now, though. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I want a very clear-eyed view. You know, if you want to laugh and, and enjoy those campy ones, no judgment, but it might seem inappropriate to make light of something that seems so severe. The way I thought about it is it's more interesting, even though we're told time and again these are unprecedented times, mankind has always dealt with viruses. It has always been a part of our story, and it was interesting to think that we could go back through the decades and look at the ways that it was presented on film and how the general public thought about contagion and viral outbreaks. And it makes sense that we would start with Panic in the Streets, a 1950 film. When we were discussing the Tom Cruise film Losing It, Stuart, you pointed out that in the 80s, a lot of movies were being set in the 50s because baby boomers who were in their formative years in the 50s grew up and now they were writing films in the 80s, so setting them 30 years earlier. Well, 30 years, or specifically 32 years before 1950, the Spanish flu was out there. So a lot of people, my 99-year-old grandmother is regaling me endlessly with, this corona's nothing, you should have been there for the Spanish flu. <laughs> yeah, 1918, not many of us can say that we were there for that, but it does sound awful, it killed a whole lot of people, and yeah, that comes up a lot. But even in the 1950s, which is the start, I think, of the movie subgenre, virus movies kick off with Panic in the Streets, the 1950s were a scary time that looked a lot like ours. You know, right now we're thinking very much about protecting our seniors because they're what's at risk for COVID-19. But back in the 1950s, hide your kids. Don't let them go to the pool. Don't let them play with other kids because if you do, they're going to get infantile paralysis, polio. I mean, the, the scare was real. People closed pools. They didn't let their kids out. It was considered a summer plague. Schools out, and then all of a sudden, just populations of people all throughout the United States would suddenly be hit hard, and kids would suddenly lose motor function and only be able to breathe when they were put into an iron lung. Interesting statistic, by the way. It sounds a lot like corona. Only 2% of the population actually developed the disease, and most of those cases were mild. Most of the people were not left with long-term disabilities. But it did impact a whole generation. I know my mom believes she was diagnosed with polio. My dad's second wife had it. Uh, you know, the 32nd president, FDR, the reason why he was in a wheelchair. He got it when he was 39 years old. He didn't even have to be a kid. People were living like we were back in 1950 when this movie came out. There was a real feel. If you sent your kid to the movie theater, he touched another kid, this could happen. It wasn't until 1955 when Jonas Salk released his cure, which was very controversial. He was doing things that scientists disapproved of in order to get that vaccine, and it worked. One monkey equaled 6,000 doses of immunization, and before you know it, all the kids got to leave the iron lung and come home. And famously, he didn't even keep the patent. It's something that warms my heart when I think about it. He thought it was unethical for anyone to profit from this cure, and so he gave it away for free. 
So there was panic in the streets in 1950. And I think the other thing that might have inspired the onset of movies talking about viruses was the smallpox outbreak of 1947. A guy got on a bus at Mexico City, drove all the way to New York City, didn't feel so well, was feverish the whole time, went to Bellevue Hospital. A week later, he died. That was when the doctors realized, oh my God, it's smallpox. They had had a vaccine for smallpox for you know over a century, but because smallpox was so rare, like nobody was immune from it. So suddenly everyone that that man had come in contact on the bus was infected and it was being, you know, crossed the country. So everyone literally was being impacted kind of like we are now. Everyone potentially could have smallpox. What the government did was they started a big PR blitz. They put out commercials on the radio TV, magazines, go to our free health clinics. They opened them up all over the country, get your vaccines. And so everyone could sing the songs. Everyone knew about shots and the necessity of getting immune to smallpox. Hollywood jumps on trends. If something is big in the news, they're going to come up with a movie about it. And I think that's the movie we're here to talk about today. I'd never heard of Panic in the Streets until we decided we were going to cherry pick what is what? The best, the most iconic virus movie from each decade, the 50s through the teens. And you said this is the top one on the list. I, I've i never heard of this. Yeah, nor have I. This is totally new to me. I knew it by reputation, but I've never seen it either. I do think most people know Elia Kazan. He was a director, more famous maybe for Broadway, the stage, but he helped pioneer the method acting. So if you know Brando, if you know James Dean, if you know all of those leading light actors from the 1950s, Elia Kazan probably worked with them and got them to be the actors that they were. Yeah, I did look up this director, and, and unfortunately Brando, unless he's in Superman or The Godfather, I, I got a blind spot for his films as well as James Dean. So I recognize, yeah, Kazan, oh, he's he's actually done some big movies, but yeah, this one isn't one of his that I've heard of. It was his sixth film total, first time working with a major studio, 20th Century Fox. He would go from here right into Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront. And again, I know the Brando movies. I didn't know this film. He was known at the time for message movies. You know, he did a film about anti-Semitism called Gentleman's Agreement and won the Best Picture Oscar. He did one about racism called Pinky. People thought, oh, you take an important issue. You'd be perfect to be talking about viral outbreaks. Why don't you do this script? But Kazan was determined. He wasn't just going to do what he had been doing. He was wanting to get better as a filmmaker. And that meant studying Orson Welles, John Ford, learning about photography, and really trying to be cinematic, moving the camera in long shots, doing things so that it didn't feel like a play, didn't feel staged and set in an artificial movie studio. He actually moved his family down to New Orleans so that he could learn the whole landscape, find the best locations, meet the locals, cast the locals. Most of the people in this movie are people that lived in New Orleans at the time and really used his method acting training to give us a more real sense of a community than would have been done on a soundstage by some other director. Yeah, besides Jack P- Palance, I didn't recognize anyone in this. And again, this is 1950, so I'm not as up on those actors. But when I looked them up, I, I just didn't recognize a lot of roles that they had played. Again, besides Palance, because I've seen City Slickers and Batman 89. This is Jack Palance's first movie. 
yeah, he was the only one I knew from this entire cast, and I wouldn't have recognized him if I didn't know from the credits Jack Palance was in it and then recognized the chin. Keep in mind, for <laughs> my generation, Jack Palance is the guy who did the push-ups on yes. the Oscar stage after winning for Curly's Gold. You know, <laughs> Actually, that was the sequel, but City Slickers. That's Jack Palance to me. And yes, Batman. And when Batman came out, I had no idea who this old guy was. I was looking at Nicholson. Come on. The best movie of all time. Tango and Cash. He was the villain. Was he? Wow. He was. Yeah. How could you forget? Yeah, he was in there. I mostly knew him from Ripley's Believe It or Not. If you remember, he had that show where they'd like, believe it. Or not. Was he the host? Oh, yeah. That was his trademark. That was his moment. Oh, yeah. He is looking like a Dick Tracy villain in this film. Like, (laughs) that face has some sharp, angular, like, cuts in it. I'm with you, Arnie. I didn't recognize him. If I hadn't seen his name there, I wouldn't have been looking for him. Richard Widmark was also a noted actor, up for Oscars already. He had had a breakout with Kiss of Death, which was remade with Nick Cage, who's known as a crazy psycho. His big scene in that movie was he pushed a woman in a wheelchair down the staircase. And so everyone was like, don't mess with Richard Widmark. Doing this movie was his attempt to change his image to something a little bit more heroic. And Zero Mostel would go on to work in Mel Brooks's The Producers, if you've ever seen that movie. And I've seen it. I figured with the name Zero Mostel, like, he's got to be some kind of character actor. I knew him from Electric Company. I was the right age. He was on that show. <laughs> but yeah, there were some famous names in here. But mostly, again, the idea was we're trying to capture the real New Orleans, a real situation, and get away from that artifice that so many Hollywood movies of the time uh, would give you. This movie was a hit. It made money, and it won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. And it gave Kazan the opportunity to do another movie set in New Orleans, Streetcar Named Desire, and really... Again, from that point, his career exploded. He was big time. Really? It's a success? Wiki said it didn't make its money back. Wiki's wrong. Okay. So, Arnie, why don't you give him the plot, and we'll find out why it won the Oscar. When the body of an illegal immigrant is found to carry the pneumonic plague, it's up to Richard Widmark's character, U.S. public health physician, Lieutenant Commander Clint Reed, to stop it from becoming a pandemic. But the dead man, named Kochak, didn't die of the disease— He was plugged full of lead. Aiding Reed is police captain Tom Warren, played by Paul Douglas. Initially, Warren doesn't see the urgency and secrecy of Reed's search, but as the investigation continues, Warren comes to realize if this gets out, people will flee New Orleans, likely carrying the plague with them. Warren even risks his career to arrest a reporter who wants to take the news public. No one wants to rat about Kochak and his goon friends, but they are able to track the man to the ship the Nile Queen on which Kochak was a stowaway. The entire crew is quarantined and inoculated. And the heat may be simmering, but it's on Kochak's murderer, a gangster named Blackie, played by Jack Palance. He and his goon Fitch, played by Zero Mostel, plan to get out of town, not knowing they're both infected with the plague. But before they go, Blackie is convinced Kochak gave something of great value to his cousin Poldy, and Blackie tries to shake Poldy down, but the man's dying from the pneumonic plague. Warren and Reed find out Kochak's connection to Poldy, and that's where they have a shootout with Blackie and Fitch. Blackie accidentally shoots Fitch, then trying to escape by boat, he falls in the water, and the plague is stopped as credits roll. 
Yeah, and as we start, there can be no doubt about it. The jazz music, Bourbon Street, we're there, man. New Orleans, you got to remember, that was Sin City. Like, Vegas hadn't become really a thing yet. If you wanted to see the dirtiest, nastiest place on earth and didn't want to make it New York, this is probably where you would set it. But I got to ask, is that uncomplimentary? The citizens of New Orleans opened their doors to this movie, but is it insulting them by saying, you're going to get plague if you come to New Orleans? I don't know that it's insulting to them. I mean, if you say that, any city you set it in, it could be insulting to. My thought was, I don't feel they use the New Orleans setting exceptionally well. I get that it's filmed on location, but they don't talk about New Orleans very much. There's not a lot of people with Southern accents. They don't use the iconography of New Orleans, like the square and the church and things like that. Yes, we have the opening shot, but... For the rest of this movie, it might as well have been set in New York. Yeah, this could have been set anywhere. I, I guess if you're going with the storyline, you need a city that has a port. New Orleans has one. That's where they're filming. But I agree. It doesn't really feel like a New Orleans film. Okay, I totally disagree with both of what you guys are saying. I mean, part of the reason, what they equate here is the idea if you do sinful things, death, right? Like there, there's a morality and a judgment to who's going to get this plague. I do think because we start with a gambling den. Again, if this were an insurance company meeting, like I, it, that would have an entirely different feel. It's the fact that we're in a film noir movie and we're starting with gangsters and hoods and they're the real source of this epidemic. But I feel like that that's also necessary for the story because if it's a bunch of insurance salesmen, they go, oh, yeah, here's everyone I contacted. Go check them out. I'm not going to run. Like, I feel they'd be much more compliant than if you have criminals <laughs> carrying it like that. And that is the interest of the story is that it's a mystery. Yes, it's a viral film. We got to stop this outbreak. But it's also a mystery because they don't know who this victim is that got shot. They don't know who the criminals are. So, like, that's the intrigue of the film. I'm glad it's not about insurance men getting the plague. And as far as what you're telling me about New Orleans ever being the Sin City of America, America, that's news to me. I never knew that. I mean, I always thought Mardi Gras was debauchery until I went and realized it's not as debaucherous as it really seems. It's just a lot of people getting drunk. To me, in my entire life, going, you know, as far back as I can remember, I've never heard of New Orleans being a den of sin. So to me, I took it as criminals bring plague, but not New Orleans as being judged by God as being Sodom. Yeah, I think it definitely is a town where some of this license wouldn't be allowed. I, again, it was the most libidinous city in America at its time because Atlantic City didn't legalize gambling yet. Vegas wasn't the thing. New York, again, we'll, we'll talk about New York when we talk about the other movie released during this year that was about pandemic. They told the New York story. But I also think the thing being demonized here, and it's a common one, we've heard it <laughs> recently, Immigrants, right? Illegal immigrants. Some Armenian got on a boat and snuck in here, and they bring the plague. It kind of plays that way, but again, there's a reveal later that there's a ship that's got a bunch of rats on it that have it. And so I feel like, I don't know, maybe they want to be fair and balanced. And so they're saying, ah, maybe it's the immigrants. Maybe it's these boat captains that run unclean ships. I feel like there's an out there if you don't want to blame the immigrants. But yet he's still the one who snuck into the country with the plague. And yes, I think part of the reason why they talk about the rats is this movie wants to end on a happy ending. If you think all the Armenians are keeling over dying and the plague is out anyway, that doesn't work. You need to have a 
confined spot of origin. You have to have, to use a modern terminology, the guy who ate the bat soup. Right. I looked it up to see if Armenians had a particularly bad reputation at the time. I mean, I know they do now because of Kim Kardashian, but like, is there anybody <laughs> else? I don't hold Kim necessarily responsible as indicative of all Armenians. But apparently the reason why it was chosen among many was the fact that Elia Kazan was from a region of Turkey that bordered on Armenia. So he just, it's almost like he was projecting himself into the situation by making it this guy who... His luck seems to be up. He's winning the card game, but he's also getting sicker and sicker. So sick, he's going to quit before he's lost all the money that they're trying to cheat him out of. It's a trope in movies. You can't have anybody sneeze, cough, mention that they don't feel well before it becomes a major plot point. Fortunately, here, it's the entire plot. It's <laughs> not like one of those drama movies where somebody doesn't feel well and the twist ending is they die of cancer. Here, we're being told right away he doesn't feel good, he has a headache, he's tired, and they're not going to let him leave with his winnings. Palance is not a loser. This game goes one way, and it's with me taking all the chips in. If you walk away the table with my money, I'm going to send guys to go out there for you. And I got to say, yeah, Jack Palance, you're right. I know him from Ripley's Believe It or Not and City Slickers. I didn't realize how scary he is, but this man... From word jump in this movie, the angular quality of his face, the way that they use shadow on him, he's taller than everyone else in that suit. Yeah, he looks like the angel of death. Yeah, there's one scene later on we'll talk about where I'm like, oh, this is like a horror movie. And it's because of Palance, like his performance. And like you said, the way he looks, that angular face, he's so tall. I, I was trying to figure, because a few times he's going to be hanging out with little people. I'm like, does he look tall? Because there's little people. But no, he's <laughs> tall against everyone in this film. He looks abnormally tall, you know, yeah. next to a little person. And for the rest of the movie, though, he does tower over everyone. You say this is his first film. They found a right person to have an imposing presence. Being in the 50s, it does have a lot of those kind of what I'd consider the stereotypes of the gangster genre. They never actually feel dangerous, but he cuts an imposing figure. Yeah, and just a little thing that I learned, part of the reason why he has the face he does, maybe it's because he's Ukrainian, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that a plane engine blew up in front of him while he was maintaining it, and so they had to, like, do reconstructive surgery on him. Like, this is some, I don't know if you'd call it a facelift or a re-scrambling, but this is what he was left with after a major accident. And so, again... Elia Kazan is using long takes. We have the guy walk across the train track, almost get hit. The men are tailing him, cornered, and it's Jack Palance that puts the bullets in. And that would be fine, right? End of movie if they hadn't spent so much time with him. Right. They took the wallet, right? And they're going to move the body to the Ninth Street Bridge to throw him into the water. So that means they got plague. And maybe you don't know that yet. If you didn't know what this movie was about, if you just thought it was a noir movie and Richard Widmark was the crazy guy, you, were expect you would expect him to be the villain. You wouldn't know who this palace guy was. And maybe you wouldn't make a bit. You'd think the guy was drunk and not carrying bubonic plague. Pneumonic plague. It's not quite bubonic. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Is this a thing, though? I don't know if you did research, because it seems like it's very contagious in this film. I looked it up, and the pneumonic plague is a real plague, and the symptoms are accurate. It takes a little longer than they say. It, they, according to Wiki, it takes about a week before the symptoms show up. Yeah, they say 48 hours in this. 
but apparently there's three big plagues. I've only heard of bubonic, which of course is the rat spread plague, but there's also pneumonic and septismic. Yeah, I mean, I think everything here has the air of being real. I mean, but tweaked. Yeah, because this is a movie that needs to have a ticking clock. The idea is that these men are infected. They're carrying the virus, but they won't be spreading it to the community. There won't be an outbreak until they start having symptoms. And that's 48 hours from now. So right now they are walking around. They're wondering why the town is tearing itself apart, looking for the murder of some unknown Armenian dude. I don't know if the way this movie sells it, that a year ago, I'd be feeling the danger of this. I know that they say plague, but for a lot of this movie, it feels like cops and robbers more than it feels like contain and quarantine. But yet, because of Corona and just, I mean, this is as massive a mind shift as 9-11 was. It makes you look at everything differently. Now I'm thinking of, okay, who are those two people meeting? And when we cut to the scene in the morgue with the body, I'm like, does it, it probably continues after death. So the coroner, everybody in the room, the police that brought the bodies, the EMT, I'm just following the spread in my mind of where this is going and who could be infected and how many people need to quarantine. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, thank God this is 1950 because, yeah, you could just go on a foot chase and find everyone. Like, if you set this in 2020, well, look what's happening. Like, you can't just have someone from the public health department and a cop round some people up and solve this. But I appreciate this for being a small-scale viral film. Like, yeah, we're going to get introduced to Clint because they're doing the autopsy and they discover the body has the pneumonic plate from the autopsy. Yeah, yeah, the coroner knows what's up. He knows what to do. They call in public health. This is what they do. And just, I should probably disclose at this point, that's what my dad did too. His job was to work with public health. He actually led the unit on sexually transmitted diseases in Illinois. More stories about that later. <laughs> Stuart, were you stuck playing with trains with Mr. Redfield? <laughs> Maybe. I, yeah, this was a, an interesting development that my 2020 mentality was like, I don't know how I feel about this relationship, but I think it's meant to look innocent. <laughs> I think it's meant to show that when we see our hero, Richard Widmark, playing Clint, that we are to think of him as someone that is good for spending his first day off in six weeks painting with his son, but his son is getting more of his needs met by the painter neighbor and needing more money, and this is a family that could use a lot more of Widmark present as a dad. Yeah, again, I like this setup because... You want dramatic personal moments, even if it's a worldwide or statewide, citywide viral infection. You still want those moments. So, yeah, the cast, Clint, your public health hero here. But, you know, his son's been neglected and he's hanging out with the neighbor. He can't pay all the bills, short on money. So I'm glad to see all this little character work thrown in here. It also adds stakes. If he was only a career man and never married, no kids he'd probably have a lot less to lose. I never really feel that he's working so hard to protect his son. I feel like he is working in the interest of public health, but it adds that layer to it, especially later on. We're going to hear one cop say, yeah, I'll, I'll come to work, but I'm getting my wife and kids out of here first. And you think about this guy who didn't get his wife and kids out of there first. 
I thought for sure they were set that up. When Tommy's talking about, I need extra quarter to go to the movies, I thought for sure, oh no, the movie theater is going to have the hoods in it and they're going to be infected and that they were going to put the family in danger at some point. That is an instinct. I do think a more modern movie, if this got remade, they definitely would look at dangling the child on a hook, uh, you know, above uh, the virus. They would definitely want you to be like, oh my God, is he going to pull out of here? Here, it's just wholesomeness. It's just to make a public health official, which probably has never been the star of any movie before, (laughs) seem like a normal, average, leave it to beaver kind of dad. And we like him for that reason. We don't think about him pushing old ladies downstairs in wheelchairs at all. And just so I understand, a public health official, because Stuart, you said your dad did, so... Does that mean Clint's a CDC employee or just a government employee? Like, are these officials they have in every major city? Like, I didn't quite understand how that worked. I'm like, oh, he's just a government guy. Okay. The Department of Public Health does exist everywhere. It's what closes down restaurants when they're unclean. Okay, so it's that department. All right. And to be clear, Clint works for the Navy. We see as he's getting ready that tie and shirt and all of that. And then the last thing is that coat with the epaulots. He is a Navy man. And so he uh, operates from that mentality. The thing that really helped me not panic and have... You can't call it post-traumatic stress disorder, just simply current traumatic stress disorder about this is when they discover this, though, Reed's like... We have a vaccine. We can inoculate you. They have it. Yeah. It's not like it's this unknown coronavirus where there's no way to stop it other than to quarantine it. They can give you an inoculation and still quarantine you to make sure you don't show symptoms. But it's not like this is an unstoppable plague. There just probably wouldn't be enough resources or time to inoculate enough people but everywhere reed goes he's like all right roll up your sleeve it almost became a comedy at one point where he's just like inoculation for you inoculation for you like he's always got a syringe full of that vaccine for this like it is kind of funny like he's always ready to go he's using it as a bargaining chip to get his way like he's always got this syringe on him Yeah, there is no actual panic in the streets. What it is, is about containing the streets. It's about closing down the streets. If they don't get ahead of this, and if they make a big public outcry, those hoods are going to jump town, and then who knows where they go. In 10 hours, they could be anywhere. And like the guy that got on the bus, you know, from Mexico to New York City, suddenly every state is going to have cases, because lots of people get on buses at that time and touch the same railings, and they're all going to be infectious. And so that's the thing. If you have the fever and have the symptoms like he had, you can transmit it. As soon as these guys start getting the sniffles, they can transmit it. And I like that it's not always just about stopping the bad guys. It's also the press. If the press goes live, it's going to flip people out and they're all going to start fleeing. And I I know there's definitely some controversy with how the press is treating COVID-19 in our day. So it was interesting to see that aspect still in this film. Like, what is your duty to the public? Do you warn them or do you try to quash this and, and, and get rid of it before anyone finds out yeah clint is of the mentality that the government knows more than you people panic people again and he's really thinking about specifically whoever shot this guy they're going to run away if they're they know there's a manhunt for them so we've got to keep this under wraps we got to do this as covertly as possible I had to check. I was kind of horrified when we see him go to the body and he's like, oh my God, he looks in the microscope and he knows. He's like, oh my God, burn it, burn everything in this room, get rid of everything. But he's not wearing gloves. 
Like he's not wearing any masks. He's not wearing any protective gear. I'm like, well, that's an oversight of this movie. No, I was horrified at practices. At this time, I saw a documentary about lab workers who worked on the polio vaccine and, and all of that. And in general, like the things that they would do were horrific. They didn't sing happy birthday twice while they washed their hands? <laughs> no, they they sat on mercury-soaked towels. The thought was, oh, if you spilled the virus, the mercury would kill it. Well, guess what? It's also going to kill you. Yes! I mean, my God. And to get it out of the vials, they would put a straw in and suck it out. Oh, Jesus. And they were like, yep, sometimes it got in our mouth. We just tried to wash it out <laughs> and do the best that we could. Like, we were really at the infancy of immunology at this point, and lots of mistakes were made we got better this movie is showing what it was like and it was horrifying so yes very quickly uh we will get the gloves we'll get the mask and all the later films i just took it as this is a 1950s movie entitled panic in the streets i mean to me because there isn't a panic in the streets this is screaming to me like drive-in movie theater type of advertisement. I just didn't expect the level of sophistication to be scientifically accurate. I had no idea that science was so ignorant back then. And I mean, I mean that as the definition of ignorance is not having the knowledge. And I guess that's where they were. Yeah, I don't think this was a drive-in movie, Arnie. I mean, I do think it's kind of a B-picture because all noir movies are kind of a B-picture. But if you have Elia Kazan directing this film, whose previous films have won Best Picture Oscars, he's not making junk for the teenagers at the drive-in. I think he's just saying with a title like Panic in the Streets, because, yeah, I'm f- I'm thinking, oh, is this going to be a zombie film? Something like that. Like just everyone running in the streets going crazy, which never does happen. Yeah, when I see the poster, which I saw, that's all I saw before seeing the movie, with huge letters, watch out! Soon you will see the screen excitement of the year. That reminds me of that movie matinee type stuff, you know? Just the overexcited B-movie advertisement. Yeah, I mean, it was how you sold a movie, hype. I think you have to remember that movies didn't want to scare the shit out of you in 1950. Like, there was certain a level of comfort and entertainment that came with going to a movie theater in 1950. Nobody wanted to make something bleak and hopeless and absolutely terrify you. But it is interesting seeing... I, I don't even know if they're cliches in 1950. They definitely are today. But the fact that Tom Warren, this cop, is going to have to team up with Clint once they discover, okay, this is the plague. We got to stop this. We got to find out whoever shot him and because they could have it. And the fact that, again, here's a developed character. Here's this cop who's wife died because she was mixed diagnosed from a doctor and now he's got to team up with the doctor like that creates some tension like this is all basic stuff but it feels just more sophisticated seeing it in an older film because they didn't always know those story beats yeah it would be very easy to just make this a single guy running against the clock trying to you know that's what a noir movie would do there's one private detective there's not a bunch of private detectives you have one guy trying to find the hood with the Maltese Falcon and he's got to go through all these people to get there the idea here is that yes we are going to show a buddy cop formula as it were kind of yeah yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely especially since part of that buddy cop formula is they start off rubbing each other the wrong way and here the police officer has a very different idea of how this should be investigated and i think audiences of the day would be more inclined to like paul douglas's character they would know paul douglas from comedies he seems more like an average joe than unlike this public health official again played by this psycho that you know everyone saw do terrible things 
and he was a sports announcer. Before that, he had done Angels in the Outfield, the original, and he announced football. And so I think that that just gives this guy a common man quality that you need. You need a character that's going to lead people into the science, lead them to believe in what's going on here. Because in 1950, there may be large numbers of people in the audience that don't know about how viruses are transmitted or may not be inclined to learn. This is their character. I think all the cops are thinking, this guy was shot, he's anonymous, he's an immigrant, why do we care, why are we putting out such a manhunt for this invisible enemy, this supposed infection that nobody can see. But he does play ball. I mean, he does roll up his sleeve. He does take the shot because he has to. And I'm completely on the side of the CDC official. And I understand why he's saying everything he's saying about trying to stop the panic. Because you don't know who has it, how many people have it. The instinct is going to be to get out of the city, which isn't necessarily going to help you or the situation, as, again, we presently know way too well. That's definitely what Zero Mostel is trying to do. Like, this movie is filled with missed connections. Like, you can see these officials being like, how do we get the guy? And then all of a sudden, Fitch is in the background, like, excuse me, reaching over. We see them constantly throughout there. If they could just turn around, if they could just know, the answer is just right away there. And we see Fitch going to talk to his wife after all these criminals have been rounded up and questioned to no effect. And he's ready to skip town. He is ready to go with Blackie, but Blackie is not willing to go without Poldy. He thinks Poldy knows something that he wants to know. Yeah, Blackie believes Poldy got something from this Armenian immigrant. And he did. (laughs) $200 of perfume. It is kind of a funny joke at the end. I was thinking the plague, but yes, I guess there was the perfume. But yeah, all the cops looking, has Blackie convinced that there's something of value And when, yeah, it's everybody's going to get sick and die. And I have to laugh that Jack Palance runs a laundromat. Like they go to his business and it's all these like laundry machines. I mean, I get criminals launder money. Not literally. (laughs) Like the fact that he's going to like bang on the machine if like it's not working and like, sorry, I can't get your quarter man. In fact, Fitch's wife is like running around grabbing loose change so she can play the pinball machine. There's a lot of comedy kind of running through here. It's not like ha ha hilarious comedy. There's a lot of quirkiness. A lot of eccentric characters milling about in this movie that gives it a the gumbo flavor of New Orleans. Yeah, I think he said this director, what, he studied Wells. I felt like the third man or touch of evil, like Orson Wells would throw in just a little comedic moment like that. And I, this does feel of that flavor. See, and I wasn't able to get comedy out of this because of the time. I'm not thinking it's trying to be intentionally funny. I'm just finding it a little hard for me to take the criminal side of this story seriously. I'm far more interested in Catching the Plague than I am in Blackie and Zero Mustel and all of them. I really don't care about this cops and robbers story at all. That feels like it's intertwined. Yeah, I mean, I I understand that you're wanting Outbreak or Contagion, and you're kind of getting it, but this is stirred in with a healthy dose of film noir. This is a cops and robbers story, and I think that that was the only way to sell a virus outbreak movie in 1950. I don't doubt it, but Blackie's quest 
to find out what the item is of value and all of that is less interesting than watching Reed and the cop investigate. And especially when Reed goes off on his own and is like, we know he can't pay the cleaning bill because his wife's given him this bill many times and he's like, we don't have the money. But he goes to the docks and sees the travelers and offers them $50 of his own money if they give him information about where this plague goes. So that sells how important this is to him. Right. And his only lead is, you know, he burned the body, but they looked at the suit. The suit was foreign and it had like a little bit of paint on it. It had a little bit of like, I think they said like fish scales or something like on it. Like what my point is, is he's working on minimal evidence. It's really just a hunch, a feeling that tells him that this guy came in by a boat, but he could be entirely wrong. Like he's taking a huge leap here by just standing outside a shipyard and saying, hey, anybody recognize this guy? They took a photo before they burn the body and of course everyone is more interested in booking passage and an hourly wage than talking to this guy although some of them are thinking about mugging him i mean i do think that that was kind of a funny observation somebody makes that is where there's a slice of humor the fact that when he tells his wife like good luck getting a refund from the u.s government there are those moments of humor but this whole thing at the docks doesn't pay off at first like it takes a while he's got to go to a diner and then someone's finally going to show up yeah he's going off minimal information but it's not like oh i just have this really slight hunch and then it pays off right away like the clock is ticking like he's got to wait for this woman to come to him and say "Mm, maybe i know someone you know, we're spoiling this day and age that we don't have the CSI, right? Like, we don't have the people to come in and be like, DNA, this is this, you know? <laughs> and somebody got fingerprints, but that was a process where you went through a file cabinet. Yeah, you had to manually match them. Like, I mean, like, there's no way to just instantly match. So no one's going to ever figure out who this Armenian is. No one is going to be able to use DNA evidence. He has to go on, like, the smudge on the suit to try and lead him here. And it eventually leads to, yeah, a sailor who says, I did see this guy and he was on the Nile Queen. Which has me very worried because I'm like, okay, he's on a boat. Where did it come from? Where did the sailors go? I guess none of the sailors left the boat by that point. Well, they had gone out again. I mean, I got the sense from the shipyard that like they were constantly shuffling new people on and off. And this movie, is it's scary in that way. You realize, you see all these numbers of people clustered together and you just realize... No social distancing going on. Yeah, like it's just like, oh, well, yes. If someone were infected, everyone here is going to be needing that shot. Everyone here is going to have their life in jeopardy. If one of them has plague and is actively showing those symptoms. And so, yes, this sailor wasn't on the current voyage of the Nile Queen, but the cop and Clint have booked a plane and fly out there to sea to try and talk to the captain who's like, I don't have rats. I don't know what you're talking about. No stowaways on my vessel. It's out of pride that he wants to deny the fact that uh, Armenians slipped in here. It's only because they talk to the Chinese cooks and they're like, oh yeah, we had to make shish kebab that they're like, okay. That was the clue that, like, was, okay, that's going a little too, like, shish kebab. Okay, now we know who our guy is. We know to go to every place that serves Greek and Armenian food. Like, that was the one clue where I'm like, uh, okay, I guess I got to give it that. Well, I mean, it confirms that an Armenian was on the boat. I mean, there was a real discrepancy about whether the guy was there. And more people are willing to talk after, like, this fight breaks out. And Yeah, they almost mutiny. 
they're afraid to go against authority. They're afraid to speak up against their captain. They mentioned that they had docked in Oran, that is the capital of Algeria, and it is the setting of Camus' The Plague, which would have been a new book at that time, but one of the most famous and beloved novels about living in a quarantine city during an outbreak. And so I don't think that's an accident. I do think they've chosen things to remind people of the time about outbreaks that they would have heard of and pop culture things that would remind them of what was going on in the world. But this is, I agree with you, Arnie, still playing mostly like if the virus stuff were rolling off of you, you could still just enjoy it as they're criminals and we got to get them. I think to audiences in 50, other than the polio thing, a lot of it could be taken that way. Instead of, you know, you're following the clues to get your gangster and here the clues are, oh, you're sick. But it also does give the lieutenant commander a lot of leverage. I mean, when he's there with the boat and nobody's going to talk and he's like, well, you're all going to die. Waves (laughs) that syringe around with the vaccine. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that would scare me. A lot of people don't know why they get sick. But I think by 1950, enough had been talked about. You would have seen syringes. You would have heard about inoculations. We had penicillin, you know, like we knew enough to know that some smarty pants could help us if they injected us with those serums. So. Yes, they're going to listen to the public health official. And yeah, we see them on their successful mission, but they start hitting up Mediterranean joints all over the city. They mentioned this is their 15th one when they finally catch up with John Marfis. Well, no, they say number 11, but there's like 15 total. The cop said 15 because he he was tired. And then the other guy goes, 11, if you want to be specific. Apparently we want to be specific. We're now playing. I'm just (laughs) trying to stop people from calling us out. That this also ties in with Outbreak. I do think that one of the famous stories of the 20th century is Typhoid Mary, who was an Irish cook who would not give it up. She was asymptomatic, so she never got sick, but she knew she had typhoid. She knew that when she prepared food, whoever ate it got sick, sometimes died, and she kept doing it. It went on for almost a decade, and we still know that expression, Typhoid Mary. I think it ended up being a Marvel villain at some point. Electra, yes, it had Typhoid Mary. Remember, she'd kiss you and you'd die. (laughs) I had no idea that the real person knew what she was doing. I thought she was just blithely unaware. Yeah, there are people now that have been arrested for terroristic threats because they go around coughing on people. Like, don't do this, people. If you feel sick, go home. That's specifically, if you call someone a typhoid Mary, you're saying not only are they transmitting disease, but they're intentionally doing so. They're wanting you to get their infection. And I don't know that she wanted it. I think she wanted to work. She was a cook by trade, and she tried other things, and she just wasn't good at it. And so she just kept going back to cooking and working in kitchens. And yeah, over 50 people die. So you would think that you know, ethics would stop. They ended up quarantining her for the rest of her life. She just ended up basically being jailed, but they didn't call it jail. And that's kind of what's happening here. I mean, if you think about it, they're in a restaurant and these people are lying and saying, oh yeah, we haven't seen this guy, but they're infected. They very much knew that they're infected and they're still preparing food. They're still serving all these customers and that's going to get everyone that has come into this restaurant and eaten. Do they ever track all those people down? I don't think they do. No, I think the movie conveniently assumes that someone with a syringe comes up and (laughs) yes, off camera, all of this. Again, we're really trying to stop Jack Palance and maybe the other two so that they don't get on a bus and go on a cross country trip like they're planning on. Like we know that they want to skip town. And what does that mean? Where will they go? Will it be a major metropolitan city? And then thus potentially millions of people infected. That's the stakes that they're talking about. All these supporting characters, again, they're just here to kind of remind us that New Orleans is a city where people bump up against each other, and it's very easy to 
transmit this plague. This is also where Blackie comes back into the picture. He has been told by this little person, they found Poldy. He was hiding out, and why was that? Well, he's sick. Coming down with it slowly, he's about at the stage his cousin was when his cousin got killed. Yeah, and he's not helping his case with Blackie. He's wearing a couple of his cousin's shirts. He preemptively says, oh, no, no, I didn't take anything. They set something up that I didn't realize was a setup for this, but he said, what's that smell? Jack Palance comes in and like he can smell something, and I think, oh, he's sick. He's been vomiting, probably. But <laughs> no, the, the point is he's wearing this expensive perfume that because these Armenians really were planning on a side hustle of, I don't know where this perfume came from, but they were going to make a little bank and not tell this mobster heavy what they were doing. So that was the big crime that they were going to commit. But he's still wearing the perfume even though he's got plague. Which could be an ad for Calvin Klein, I feel like. (laughs) Plague. (laughs) Just to put it in perspective, we laughed about $200 of perfume. I did look it up. It's around $2,000 of perfume today. So that's a little bit more worth pissing your crime boss off for. But yeah, when he said, what's that smell? I'm like, does the disease give you a smell? Does he have body odor from sweating? What is the smell? I mean, obviously that is the hardest of the senses to sell through a cinema screen. And so I was just confused until, yeah, the perfume thing came out. So it's a dead end. Like our public health official has nowhere to go. They've, they hit every shwerma joint in New Orleans and nothing's going until it comes over the radio. Rita is sick. And in fact, by the time they get there, this wife that was preparing the food that wasn't going to tell them that they were harboring the Armenian, she has died. And her husband is now willing to talk and say they were hiding out at the Gloria Hotel. Yeah, and they do quarantine their whole apartment building, Arnie. So I think they're rounding up people from the restaurants too. You kind of feel like the wife deserved it. The husband wanted to talk, and the wife's like, no, don't tell those people anything. So the wife died for her secrecy, and the husband, who always wanted to talk, now that his wife's dead, he's going to spill everything. Yeah, I do feel like there is, again, a moral judgment. People are gambling, they're drinking too much, they're lying. And, you know, not unlike a slasher movie, that doesn't mean that they deserve death, but it helps to sell the idea that if you do these things, bad things like plague are going to come upon you. There's karma to it all. Again, it's impossible, I think, for all of us to not filter this film with what we're going through right now. I mean, again, part of the big debate is how long do we shut the economy down? And and especially someone that's small restaurant owner like this husband and wife, that would be devastating. And so I don't feel like harsh judgments because it's a sin city. It's people. That's their livelihood. They don't want to go homeless. They need to run that restaurant. But yeah, it's a bad decision. And you know what? I think at this point, the audience may judge Clint because once they get to that hotel, this is also where the reporter that's been trying to catch up with them has. He believes, oh, I know this is cholera. It's smallpox. And they're like, nope, it's plague. And you're not going to print that. The cop is going to side with the public health official and just take this guy away, silence him. I mean, I think the guy makes a good point. The public has a right to know that an epidemic is about to break out here. They could read that in the morning papers. It has been a full day of these guys running around to eateries and out to sea. Their leads are bad. I do think at this point, you just need to start telling people, beware, wash your hands. Or just go out there and be like, we've got it all under control. It's fine. This Armenian virus is not going to be a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't do that. (laughs) 
But yeah, I mean, I do think that this is a moment where Clint himself, the movie kind of stops. I mean, up to this point, I won't say it's tense and as exciting as the advertising would make you believe, but you're in the rhythm of trying to catch them. And again, the, the characters dart in and out of the screen. Sometimes they're on screen together. You feel like they're close. And then we take this moment to ask moral questions of Clint. He goes home. His wife is very up on social distancing. She's like, oh, okay, honey, I get it. Let me make you the cot. You'll sleep out here on the patio. And they really talk about their future and what it is that has happened in their marriage. She's not pregnant, right? She just wants to be pregnant. No, she is. Well, she says, I decided to have a baby. I don't think she had abortion as an option. I thought she was saying, I decided I want to have another child with you. Because she does say, is that okay? Okay, you might be onto something there. I assume that to mean that she didn't take preventative measures. That's just me yeah. and modern thinking. But you may be right. She's decided in this sense that, of course, everyone, that's a conscious decision everyone makes to have a child. And she's come along to that because they were arguing about the expense of childhood. Maybe that's what it is. But I thought that she was saying, I am pregnant I wasn't careful as I should have been because I wanted it. Yeah, she said she decided that afternoon, and I don't think they banged that afternoon. <laughs> so yeah. I, I just took it as she decided. But, you know, when she said she decided, it also could be, you know, she took a pregnancy test. I don't know. I was confused by her wording and what she was saying, but I thought they were agreeing to give that kid a little brother to play with so he doesn't have to go with the creepy painter neighbor. And keep in mind, like a pregnancy test in this era is like taking a rabbit and injecting it and seeing if it lives or dies. Like they didn't have the home kit you could get at the drugstore. <laughs> and then you mentioned about how this slows down. I'm with the movie through this scene. I'm with the family drama, but I have been so into this movie and in my mind tracking the plague and who's where and who's given it to who. But it's after this scene that it really feels like it devolves into the noir chase. And it's like I hit a brick wall. It was like all of a sudden, with 20 minutes left to go, I just had real trouble caring about this movie. And the scene definitely slows everything down. It is an unfortunate but maybe necessary moment if you have to care. And I do think audiences at the time particularly, females in the audience want to see themselves up there. They would relate to this dilemma, but it just doesn't integrate it in a way that serves to aid the suspense that you want, the intrigue that you want to keep going. I, but I have no trouble getting back into it. Once they're back on the case and it's a chase, I'm fine with that. Yeah, I agree with you, Stuart. I don't have a problem once the film wants to pick up again. I actually appreciate it that it slows down a little. Again, to have a character moment, I do feel like Tom Warren, like he's this cop that has just put his job at risk to lock up Neff, this journalist who wants to print the story. So like, you kind of like him. He's the working class hero. He's risking his job. Clint, like, what is his deal? And it's finally, you know, you get his wife to tell him off and go, you know, stop being so glum because you're not living these boyhood fantasies. Like, look at what you're doing now and embrace that. So it's a nice moment to humanize Clint because I do feel like he is so much of a Boy Scout during this film. Like, he needs to be humanized. And if you're going to be a public health official, you should really think about cancer. Like, that man smoked a whole pack of cigarettes in this movie. I can't even believe it. <laughs> I think doctors smoked while you gave birth back then. They actually recommended mothers smoke while pregnant because of the stress of pregnancy. Ugh, it's terrible. <laughs> they didn't know. I mean, it's ignorance. It's also in the scene where Clint gives his begrudging respect to the cop for jailing that journalist, which, man, that is a moral dilemma. I don't know where I stand. I'm so for freedom of speech, freedom of the press, but 
I do think that you don't want to panic where this spreads to the four wins. So, and I'll be interested to see if this comes up in other films that review for this series because it does feel like when they're hauling everyone in to question them at the police station, there's probably some constitutional violations going on there. But when things are crazy, I don't know. People are more willing to push those concerns to the side. So I, I'm glad even back in the 1950s they're having this debate in a film. Yeah, I, I agree. It's mature. It's something that you wouldn't necessarily expect a public service announcement to include there that they're thinking about moral quandary just a little bit as far as the 1950s would and i'm siding with the reporter you've had a whole day of me saying nothing if i want to warn people that tonight keep in mind a few hours from now your guys are going to be spreading plague everywhere they go people definitely should read that in the morning paper and that gives even more of a ticking clock it's like okay you have until the paper comes out because there's no TV, there's no TV news, so you don't have to worry about that. Yeah, papers are, and radio are the important media that's going to let the public know. So what it does is it says these guys have to solve it now, and they more or less do. I'm not exactly sure why they end up at Poldy's mother's house, but that's where their men are. That is where Blackie has come to take his friend away. Yeah, I, I think the nurse called them because Poldy's dying and Blackie's got his own doctor, but a nurse also shows up. I guess Poldy's mom called. But this is the scene that was scary to me when you have Blackie shaking Poldy like, what did you get from your cousin? And Poldy is on the verge of death and Palance is just so scary looking. Like To me, this is a horror scene. Like The way Poldy's body's just flopping around. I'm like, Blackie, you're going to kill him just shaking him like that at this point. He's lifting him up by the neck like Darth Vader. Like It is super scary. Yes. It gets even worse when they're carrying the body to the oxygen tent and then like oh there's the authorities just pitch him so they just dump the body over the rail (laughs) oh that made me laugh so hard though because it did that becomes slapstick at that point when you see this dummy go over the edge to me that's funny I mean, it could be a little bit of both, but I mean, it is violent. It is shocking. It gets a reaction. And we're on the chase. And you know, damn it, if there's a truck full of fruit, that's got to be strewn all throughout the streets. Panic in the streets (laughs) and tomatoes. We got to strew fruit all the way to the coffee warehouse. Yeah, I'm really worried. I I don't know how this plague spreads, but there's half a million dollars in coffee that's getting messed with. There's bunches of bananas that Blackie's running by. I'm like, do we have to burn all this food? Is it all contaminated? Yeah, well, they don't have the symptoms yet. They don't. I mean, Poldy did, but Poldy was more or less bedridden. Mama's probably got it. Mama's probably in trouble. But I think that these guys, again, if it's 48 hours, they shot that guy at night. So they're not going to really be demonstrating it until later. The reason why Poldy has it is because this is his cousin. They were hanging out. He was there to beat him when he got off the boat. But at this point, it definitely feels to me like Fitch is showing symptoms, too. I mean, he's been kind of sweaty and greasy with a bad comb over the whole movie. He's a big man and has to run a lot. That might be why he's sweating. (laughs) That's actually all that it was. Zero Mostel, like, chewed the director out. He was like, how dare you make me do all these takes? And apparently Palance was, like, wanting realism, so he kept, like, slapping him on the ass right before it started. So, like, these two almost got into fistfights (laughs) during all this chase. Like, all of that sweat. Again, method acting. That's real. Those people were really, really stressed out. And I think... That yeah, you could interpret that as the onset of plague, but I think it's just the fact that these are they've become the bubonic plague rats, right? Like they're just carriers that are now crawling underneath the docks, scurrying around, like being hunted down. They're vermin and they need to be exterminated. And that's intentional because when Jack Palance is on that rope and he hits a barrier, 
that barrier is there to keep out the rats. Now, it didn't do so well for the boat that brought in Kochak because they said they had hundreds of rats, but it is a rat guard that stops Palance. Right. And before he goes up there, he does give a really good whack to Richard Widmark. And I don't mean Clint. I mean Richard Widmark. Like, Palance being method was just like, they give him a rubber gun. They're like, hit him in the head with the rubber gun. He's like, nah, I'm going to use a real gun. And apparently you are watching (laughs) Richard Widmark being knocked out cold in that shot. Yeah, because this is Clint's, like, hero moment. He's going to go in there. He doesn't have a gun. And, yeah, he just offers him immunity. Again, that's an idea you got to come up with. Like, what's more important, putting a criminal behind bars or stopping the plague? Yeah, offer the guy immunity just to get him to give up and stop this thing. I do feel like they needed to have a moment before Act 3 kicked in where they realized that they weren't being chased for their crimes, but because of their infection. And then they make a choice anyway. Like, I feel like it would be nice to see these characters grapple with their infection and give up this ruse that they're just wanted men. But at that point, is it just that they would turn themselves in? Because why would you keep running if you know you have a plague that is going to kill you? At that point, there's no logical reason to keep running. Well, it means that you become dangerous. What was important to you is suddenly different, and who knows? Maybe they're breaking into hospitals. Maybe they're kidnapping doctors. I don't know. You just write something different because the idea that it's this cluelessness has been played out. I I just would have liked something different for the end. Yeah, it feels like this end, it gets wrapped up almost on a comedic note as Blackie is trying to climb that rope into the ship. And like you said, Arnie, can't get around that barrier and falls down and like, we got him. And, you know, of course, happy endings. You mentioned, Arnie, like that was just the expectation for most of this. I can't think of a movie, certainly noir movies have uh, cynical endings, but I don't think that too many mainstream dramas about social issues end with the character. The case could be made that the guy with the disease gets away, infection spreads, but I feel like that probably would just cause panic in the audience. Like you don't, you want to leave this audience happy and informed feeling like, oh good, if I wash my hands, I will keep plague away from me. You don't really want to scare the shit out of them. So you have the cop and the public health official shake hands, grin, and be friends as he returns home to his wife. I do like the last line. Yeah, he returns home to his wife. You do have Redfield kind of tell him off, which is funny because Clint just saved the world. But the fact that he kisses his wife, what a mushy dame. I don't think you could pull that line off today. Like you could only pull that off in the 50s when you had this huge uptick of noir films and it feels appropriate like i'm gonna give it that line it definitely is of its time there's a reason why i use some of the phrases i did in the plot summary so dame just went with the territory i rolled with it just to be clear though i mean i think this movie looks gorgeous and again just as a oh yeah as a representation of what movies looked like in 1950 i mean i thought this was a good one i mean i liked looking at it did you have a problem with it being black and white I didn't have a problem with it being black and white. I just didn't think it looked very good because it, despite being filmed on location, at no point did I feel like they were vistas. And when they're on the boat, everything was so, you know, the sky is gray. And so you lose the impressiveness of blue water, blue sky when the boat's gray, the sky's gray. That was the one scene where black and white bothered me. The rest of it, you know, is framed nicely, but it never made me feel like I was in New Orleans. We were inside for so much of it. Maybe it's the setting, maybe it's the writing, and but it's just, I, it didn't impress me. And maybe the New Orleans you know is not what New Orleans was in 1950. I mean, I think there's that as well. There is, but some of the things I'm talking about are things that have been there since the 1800s. The landmarks, the icons, the tourist things. So much of New Orleans, historic New Orleans is hundreds of years old and hasn't changed. 
the French Quarter is what I don't think we see. I think we may be in New Orleans, but without the French Quarter, it doesn't feel like New Orleans. Yeah, I never thought of New Orleans. If this is, if you like a travelogue in your film, this is not the film for you. I think it was the music. And again, the realness of the people. I mean, like extras didn't really look like this in Hollywood movies of this time. So I, I felt transported there, but did we like it? Did we want to be in these streets? Yeah, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Panic in the Streets? Jacob. Yeah, I was kind of panicking going into this one because it's just like uh, 1950s virus film. Like, this is going to be hokey. And I was actually very impressed with this one. And I know this director has done some huge films. I haven't seen them. That's my fault. But so I wasn't really, my expectations were probably low, but I think this is a, a good looking film. Again, you talk about the chase. It's not the most exciting chase at the end, but I do like how it looks walking through, you know, the coffee warehouse, all that kind of stuff. And I was thinking, I like that this is small scale. It's I don't know if you could do this today. I would like to see small scale viral film, a couple good character actors based off of Panic in the Streets. I'd be totally down for that after seeing this film. Like I would want to see something small scale again like this, where you're just trying to stop a local outbreak. And I I think that's kind of neat with this film that it gives a reason it to fit into that noir genre and go around looking for the clues even though it's not a pi like it typically is but yeah i think this film it hits a lot of different aspects of what goes on in the kind of situation we're living through right now what do you do with the press what do you do with constitutional rights those aren't the main gist of this film but but it it checks all those off which i appreciate it makes it feel more real than some hollywood films might go so i could give this one a solid recommend stewart Yeah, you know, it is hard to dramatize diseases. Actors like to play off other actors and not microbes. Like, how do you give a face to an outbreak? It has to have a human face in order to work as a villain. And I think they are incredibly blessed by having Jack Palance's face. I mean, he, as the embodiment of plague, is a stroke of genius. He's scary, so scary in this movie. Scarier than I've ever seen him in any movie, mainly because I haven't seen him in many movies, and most (laughs) of the ones I have are comedies. I loved every scene he was in, and frankly, wished he was in more of this movie. The movie would be better if we had more Blackie. But yeah, plugging a health official and a virus carrier into a film noir template so that they become the private eye and the mobster, savvy calculation. This was a great way to lay the foundation for the virus movie. Suddenly, it, it's in a familiar genre and all of these interesting ideas that all the science that the audience probably didn't know about suddenly can play out in a conventional way that hooks everyone of the time. And I think now, I don't think that this is the greatest example of film noir, largely because I could have used a more healthy dollop of cynicism. The really great film noirs are the ones that have tragic outcomes. You know, the film fatales, the sense of danger. That's lesser here, oddly enough. Even though it's a pandemic that could potentially infect the entire country, I feel like the stakes are relatively low compared to other movies like Maltese Falcon or The Big Sleep. So, not one of my favorite of the genre. It wouldn't be where you would start here, but I think it is a smart little B-movie that knew how to set that groundwork for the series we're here to talk about. I liked it. I had a good time and I hope you guys do. I think it's a solid recommend. Three for three. It's a solid recommend from me as well, but it's funny because Stuart, you and I saw exact opposite movies. For me, what I'm recommending is the virus stuff. That's what pulled me in. I agree with you that I don't think 
from the noir films I've seen, and I'm thinking, you know, Maltese Falcon, Touch of Evil, that kind of stuff, even modern noir films like we reviewed with Body Heat, this is a bad example of it. And that's why the stuff with Blackie does not do much for me. But when you deal with a public health agent trying to stop an epidemic from spreading across the country, that had me really interested. And again, a year ago, would I have recommended? Would I have been that invested in this film? I don't know. I can't say that I felt it was exceedingly well made. I do think it was the story and the topic that gripped me. And when it did devolve into the chase at the end, I didn't care. But I cared enough about the rest of this movie and I thought the performances were strong enough that I can definitely say, yeah, if you want to explore more about viruses than just turning on the news, this is a good movie. Yeah, again, it gives you a perspective about a time that feels like a long time ago, but again, had some of our same problems with quarantine and fear and ignorance. I mean, I think all of that is going on right now, and this movie captured some of that. Jesus, can you imagine quarantine without the internet and without television? (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. And I do think that if you want to see by contrast why I think this movie is well-made and better, there was another one released just a few months later. Columbia Pictures had their version that hewed a little bit more closely to the smallpox outbreak of 47 it was called the killer who stalked new york and the killer in this case is an infected blonde woman who's smuggling diamonds in from cuba and everywhere she goes she tips the bellboy she drinks from a drinking fountain she goes to see her sister who deserves to die because she was cheating on her husband and you know again it's a moral play where like you see seedy behavior again diamond smuggling all of that stuff but it really feels corny there are no stars to sell it we don't have a palance we don't have a widmark and so it just is kind of this rote psa that bombed for a really good reason so that if you saw this and then you saw panic in the streets you would really appreciate how much better this is than your average noir virus movie but we're done with the 1950s next week the swing in 60s Deep into the decade, 1965, 15 years, we're going to have a color movie, and it's, you know, we're in the era of Bond, right? Bioterrorism. It's, uh, yes, thinking about using plagues to hurt people was where we were at when we were in the 1960s. We'll talk all about it next week. Meanwhile, if you don't want to think about viruses, and again, I understand that, if you cannot bear it, and maybe you've just had your fill, we got Middle Earth problems on Friday. We can join us for Tom Cruise. (laughs) Remember the 80s? There was none of this problems then, right? It was just lots of grins, Tim Curry with horns, and legend. A movie I have distinct memories about, and none of them are good. And I remember seeing it once in high school, and yeah, you know, my memories feel like I was stoned. You know, it does feel very trippy from when I watched it on VHS. <laughs> that may be the way to watch it. I'm looking forward to revisiting it. If nothing else, I know I love Tim Curry in it. Definitely. It was a movie I really liked when I was a kid and haven't gone back to. Those could be tricky sometimes. We'll see if it's only good when you're a kid. This Friday. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Listeners, thanks for joining us. And until next time, we hope you stay happy and healthy. Wash your hands. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. No, it's always a crisis with those boys when they can't diagnose something. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. 
Things get dull, just drop right on over here. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. Gotta meet the kids, we're going to a movie. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. Well, anyway, I spent it on something for the department. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. That's where the movies pop. All the kids are going. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Oh, Pop, money just goes. You know how it is. You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. I want that money. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. I may be an alarmist. I'm telling you, if it ever gets loose, it can spread over the entire country. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Put your best man on it. Yes, sir. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're working too hard again. Associate produced by Jason Latham. We'll give him all the assistance possible. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Fall asleep, I'm dead. Now Playing Credits, read by Brock. There was a sign to this, I'll do the best I can. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You can take me at my word. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. I'm not from the police, so you can't get into any trouble. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2020, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Why don't you get out of here? Bye. Bye. But there's also mnemonic and sep and septic and septic and septic and sept and septicemic and and septicemic. I won't make you say that again. I said it once. <laughs> I'm done saying it. <laughs> there won't be an outbreak until they start. Uh, they won't. There won't be an outbreak until they start. They didn't know. I mean, it's ignorance. <laughs> Saying that word twice makes me think of that Michael Jackson interview. That's ignorant. <laughs> Just ignorant. constantly saying yeah. that word. <laughs> <laughs>